I hope you've got your Bibles with you and you'll make your way over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to pick back up. Maybe you don't have a physical Bible like this. Maybe you've got your phone. You're welcome to scroll uh, to that place on your Bible app. You're welcome to do that. We've begun looking in this letter that Paul writes, and he's writing to a church that he's very familiar with. And as he begins writing to them, we see that he's confident in their identity, who they are, not because of how good or meritous they are, but rather because they're his. They're the Lord Jesus's. They're, they're set apart. They're holy. But we know that's not because of how good they are. It's because of Jesus, the blood that was poured out on their behalf. And so Paul's confident in that. And he, he conveys that here in this introduction. And then last week we began to see there are some issues in this church. We know they have some problems. And Paul begins to confront that. He begins by exhorting them and confronting their allegiance because many of them had begun to split and have divisions within the church. Some are saying, hey, I'm after this guy, I'm after this teacher, this leader. They look a lot like the culture that they live in, whereby having certain allegiances with certain leaders, you get a little more clout. People look at you a little more highly because, well, I follow this guy or this guy. And he takes that to its logic win and says, well, did those guys die for you? No, they didn't. Who, who deserves your ultimate allegiance? That's the Lord Jesus. And as we get to this part of the text this morning, he's going to now look at something else. He's going to begin to push on their affections. So you get their allegiances prior to this, and now their affections. And so I want to just go ahead and begin reading the text for us. It's a little bit longer of a text this morning, but I, I like to keep certain textual units together, and I think this flows well. And so we're going to pick up in verse 18, and I'd like to read through chapter 2, verse 5. So just a little bit longer than, than last time. I would say the usual, but you guys don't know the usual just yet because we're only a couple of weeks in, right? So let me go ahead and begin in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, 
I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let me pray. Father, again, I thank you for this morning, Lord, that you've given us. And Father, I pray over this time, I pray that you might still our hearts. Lord, I know we may have a thousand things going through our mind this morning, maybe, maybe circumstances that we've dealt with all week, distractions, whatever it may be. Lord, I pray that we can lay those things aside, that we might focus on you. Lord, that you would just give a supreme clarity that comes by your Spirit. Lord, that you might do that, that, that you might be so gracious as to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand this morning. And Father, I pray that you would guard me from error, give me a balance as we walk through this text. And Lord, I pray that I not muddy the waters or trample the, gra the grass. Lord, we love you. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we begin here in this text, and I think we're confronted with an issue that, that we're really, every church in every age has had to encounter. How do we interact in the world in which we live? How, how do we interact as the church of Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. This is a question that the church at Corinth was having to deal with, something that we today have to deal with. One of the texts that we probably go to the most, and rightly so, comes out of John chapter 17. John 17, Jesus there, the high priestly prayer, and he's praying, and, and he prays for future believers. And he says, Lord, don't, don't, Father, don't take them out of the world, but Lord, guard them, protect them. They're not of the world. And we often say, we condense that down and say, well, we're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We're present, we're here, we're particular. We're not of the world that we're around, that we're in, that we're present in. But how do we balance that, right? How, how is it that we are present, we participate, but we don't assimilate? How, how is it that we... we we're not separatist, but we also aren't synchronistic, okay? Think about it like this. Maybe we're driving down the road, and you're in a, in a car, and on one side you have a ditch, and that's syncretism, just syncing up totally with the world, the way everything is and the culture around us. And the ditch on the other side, you've got total separatism, where you just move to a monastery out in the hills, right? Which some of us probably want to do sometimes, right? You know, get out of the city. But that's not right either. And so we want to stay somewhere in the middle, right? That we're distinct, we're peculiar, but we're present. How do you balance that? Paul's writing this letter, in effect, trying to do that very thing. He's trying to correct the steering of the Corinthians, who we've already seen have begun to drift off, and they're heading into that ditch towards syncretism. They're doing the very things that the culture around them is doing. They're following other leaders. That's not Jesus. And, and here what we're going to see is they, they've begun to desire wisdom that the world around them recognizes as wisdom. 
that, that the world outside would recognize everything they have, everything they do, as being wise. They, they want some esteem. They want some clout. They, they want to be seen as wise. That's, that's their desire. Now, I think it's helpful for us just to clarify what wisdom is. What, in that sense, right? What is it that they're so desirous of? Well, we, we see in the text, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up a little bit, right? We're not going to go verse by verse here. We're going to come up maybe about 5,000 feet so that we can get through this. But, but look with me here in verse 20. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made, the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? So we, we see that, the, the scribe. Who's a scribe? Someone who's really intelligent. Someone who's really intellectual. They know. They're, they're well-versed. They're educated. The debater of this age. So someone who's really smooth in their rhetoric. They're well-spoken. They're articulate. Those things were highly valued in that culture. And I dare say in our culture today, right? If someone's a smooth talker, you say, oh, I don't know about the content of that guy, but that sounded pretty good. You know? You, you keep going a little further down. Paul clarifies even further when he says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Wise according to the flesh. That's going to be the big distinction in this text. Wise according to the flesh, wisdom according to God. Paul's going to make that distinction, okay? So according to the flesh, what? Not many mighty, not many noble. So those things added to this fleshly wisdom. Were you born into nobility? Were you mighty? Did you have a big bank account? Did you have the right degrees? Were you recognized? Those things all went towards gaining this earthly, fleshly wisdom. If we were to just simply search wisdom on Google, which is interesting to do because there's a whole lot of stuff that pops up. But if I were to condense that down, because that's a lot of information... Generally speaking, we would define wisdom this way. Our culture around us would define wisdom this way. The application of, the application of experience and knowledge in making sound judgment. Now, that's a pretty broad definition, right? Application of experience and knowledge in making sound judgment. You can take that a little bit deeper. In fact, I read an article from someone from Stanford this week, and they basically drilled that down a little more in defining sound judgment. How do you define sound judgment? They said this, it results in living well. That's how our world would define wisdom. Experience, knowledge, goes into making sound judgment, and that sound judgment results in living well, right? So you're, you're living well, if you want to say it this way, minimum risk for maximum advancement. Things work out well. You don't put a lot of risk in, but you get a lot out. And, and that's very much what the Corinthians would agree to. They would say, yeah, same thing. Now, why is it that this doesn't mesh up with? Why, why is Paul rebuking this? If this is their mindset, what, what, what's going on that he's saying, hey, you, you can't live in this. You can't be desirous of this. Namely, because it's antithetical to the gospel. It, it doesn't line up with the gospel message. If this is what they're after, the message of the cross is not that. Minimum risk for maximum advancement, that doesn't work when you look at a crucified king. 
When you look at Jesus, the Messiah who died. No, look, look, look with me. He says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness. Now, now we've polished up the cross in our day, right? It doesn't look near as atrocious or harsh as it was in this original context. But, but this was a punishment reserved for criminals, for traitors, for the worst of the worst. The Old Testament talks about he who, who hangs on a tree, he's cursed. So to the Jews, when they hear about the Savior, the Messiah, wait, and he, and he was on a tree, he was crucified? That, that is a major stumbling block, just like he says in verse 23. You can't polish that up so that it looks wise according to the flesh. Same with the, the Gentiles. What, what were they looking for? Well, minimum risk, maximum advancement, living well. You, you take a crucified king and begin to talk about that, and what do they say? Well, that wasn't wise. He died. That, that doesn't look like wisdom. That looks like weakness. So to those of the world, to those in the flesh, this gospel is inherently foolish and offensive and and what the Corinthians are guilty of is trying to polish this up in such a way. And Paul's saying, if you polish this up where it's no longer offensive, where it's no longer foolish, it's not the gospel. It is inherently this to the world. And so don't strive after this. Don't strive after this from those outside the church. Look what he says. He, he says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. See, this was the plan all along. Even in God's foolishness, if you will, God set it up this way. That's why Paul roots this in the Old Testament. He's quoting out of Isaiah when he says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cleverness of the clever I will set aside. That was hundreds of years before Jesus came. God ordained that Jesus would come, the God-man, in the flesh. He would die a death, and, and, and it would thwart the wisdom of man. He would do it in such a way that you couldn't wise up enough to get to God for salvation. You couldn't save yourself. We couldn't scheme enough, be wise enough in our own mind. No, God did something that was so seemingly preposterous, and yet so glorious. And he demonstrates his power and his glory through it. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation to those who believe, to the Jews first and then to the Greek. For it's the righteousness of God revealed. We, we see that in, in people coming, in, in, in hearing this gospel that is so offensive, that is so atrocious, that is so outlandish. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. We hear this message, and to so many it is atrocious. It doesn't make sense. So we know that when people hear it, and they say that's glorious. Hey guys, hang with me. Zay, 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 Zay.
when they hear it, something that the world would say, that's out, outlandish. And when it resonates in the heart of a sinner, and they say, that is the most glorious truth I've ever heard, you know that it's not because of how savvy the speaker was or how polished the message was. It's because of the work of God in bestowing salvation to that individual. He made something that looked preposterous and made it glorious. And you know that that's the work of God. Because the world around would say, that it doesn't work that way. Look with me here. This is the message here in this verse 18 through 25. He's, he's describing the message. You get to verse 26 and following through the end of the chapter, he begins to speak more towards the messenger. Right? He says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You know, I, I, I consider and think about who God uses so often. Now, now, does this mean that God doesn't use people of nobility? No, that's not what that means. There's plenty of people of noble birth that God has used over the decades and generations. We see that often in Scripture. But what we see maybe more often is God using people that would be unsuspecting. I think about David, for example. The king from whom the Lord Jesus would come. What do we know about David? He's a shepherd boy. When they were having selection time for the new king, and they're running all the, the, the sons through, he's out in the field watching the sheep. Right? He's just a shepherd. Think about the disciples. Those that followed Jesus. Were many of them of noble birth? No. Most of them were fishermen or tax collectors. They were young, probably immature. God used them in a powerful way. Now why is that? There's two so that statements here in this text. There's one in verse 31 and there's another one in chapter 2. Verse 31. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting back out of Jeremiah. Again, rooting this in Scripture, in the Old Testament. He does it so often that way. God ordains it in such a way that when something miraculous happens, people don't look and say, man, look what that guy did. They say, how did that happen in spite of that guy? Right? Like God used these 11 disciples that are so unsuspecting and changed the entire world. Like that, that had to be God. Not their own wisdom or strategy. Right? And so it is with us. So often God uses ordinary individuals to accomplish His purposes. I, I, I can't help but think back to the church at Antioch that gets planted. Probably one of my favorite churches in the New Testament. It's the church that Paul and Barnabas are commissioned out of. But who planted that church? I don't know. We don't know. We just know they got kicked out of Jerusalem. They went up to Antioch, start sharing, and they share the gospel with the Greeks the gospel takes root, but we don't, we don't know who they are. It's a mystery. As far as we know, just ordinary guys. And God used them to plant a church that Paul and Barnabas were eventually sent out of. God chooses to do that. Now, is Paul giving this exhortation? Is he saying all of this without grounding it in any sort of experience? Is Paul simply a, a theorist, right? He's got a lot of knowledge and he's just spitting it all out on these churches. Or does he have something he's rooting this in? 
Look with me in chapter 2. I think this brings it all together. Paul's not just... Paul is someone who's grounded. He's got some experience. And look with me here in chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. It says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, now that sounds an awful lot like what he says back in chapter 1, verse 17, when he says, I didn't come with cleverness so as to make void the cross of Christ. Kind of that same kind of language. I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom according to the flesh, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined. Now when I read that, that stood out to me. What brought Paul to the place of determining this? To make this determination? What, what happened in his life, and his ministry, that he came to a place of saying, you know what? It's just Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Well, let's think back before Paul gets to Corinth. We talked about in our introduction back a couple of weeks ago how this church was founded. Paul came to Corinth. He's on his second missionary journey. And as he gets there, we, we find out he has some fear. He's troubled. He's evidently fearful for his life and his own health and safety. He's considering maybe even being quiet for a little while. But what happened before that? If, if we were to back up into Acts, you're welcome to turn there, or you can just hang out where you are there in 1 Corinthians. That's okay, too. But if we were go to, to go to chapter 17 of Acts, we see that Paul was in Athens before Corinth. He had made his way there. He's waiting on his colleagues to come and join him. And as he's there, he's doing what he always does. He goes and he proclaims the gospel. And he gets into some conversations and some debates. And there's a lot of religious people there in Athens. And they say, hey, well, put, put, put a pause on it. Time out for just a second, Paul. Let's take you up to the Areopagus. Mars Hill, we're going to take you up here. It's also where all these scholarly types are, the best of the best, the most scholarly folks that we have, and you, you talk to them, okay? So he goes, and that's verse 22 and following in Acts 17, is Paul before the air pagus, he's up there, he's sharing on Mars Hill, and he begins to talk about the idol to the unknown God begins to relate. And we would often look at this text and say immediately, well, this is biblical contextualization. This is, this is exactly how you contextualize the gospel. See what he's doing? He's making a bridge here. He's going to this unknown God. And then he goes and starts talking about God not being uh, served by human hands. And then he begins to even quote their own poets. So he's got this point of connection and talking about being children of God. and that, that, That's contextualization. That's what we would say, right? So often. I don't know if Paul would agree with that. I don't, I don't know that. I'll, I'll clarify, all right? This is uh, my sanctified imagination. Okay, I don't know exactly what Paul thinks with regards to this. But I think, I think as Paul was on his way from Athens to Corinth, he did some thinking. Because there wasn't a church planted in Athens. The gospel didn't take root there the same way that it did in so many other places. It, it just didn't. And I, I just wonder, is he 
considering as he's on the road to Corinth, Lord, what happened there? What, what did I do differently? What, what didn't go according to plan? What, what could I change? What, how, how can I do this to be better and more effective? And, and I think on that road, he determined, you know what? It took me a little too long to get to Jesus and him crucified. I think maybe I got a little too fancy on my speech in trying to connect this. And I think he just on that road said, you know what? It's Christ and him crucified. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going to stay for this new work here in Corinth. And I think that's what he did. I think far too often, church, we, we try and polish up the gospel in such a way that we rob it of its power. We try and fancy it up, clean it up, and the reality is it is always going to be offensive to some. To some it will be death unto death, the aroma of death unto death. But to others it will be life unto life. They'll hear it and it will be the sweetest news they've ever heard in their entire life. And how do you know? How, how do you know it's a work of God? Because it's offensive. It should be. And they see it as sweet. And you know it's the power of God bestowing salvation to those that He's calling. So here, here's my question as we go back to 1 Corinthians. On a personal level, what, what is our affection in sharing the gospel and going out, being believers in this context here in Sao Paulo, or maybe you travel for business? Are we so desirous in our sharing of the gospel that we, we, we always want to be esteemed? We always want to be thought highly of. We always want people to say, well, that was really good. Well, that was nice. That's a good message, even if they disagree. Are we trying to polish it up? Is, is that our chief desire of what they think at the end of it? Or is our chief desire that we be faithful to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified? To do that, knowing that there's going to be offense. Now, we say it in love. Don't get me wrong. Paul's going to clarify that later. You, you don't just say this without love, or else you're just a clanging gong, right? You, you're no good. So it's offensive, yes, but it's in love. Are we doing that? Do we desire to be viewed as wise? Or do we desire to be faithful? He says in verse 5, All of this, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do we want people that come to faith, their faith, to rest in the sure assurance of the power of God or on how fluent you were or how articulate you were? That if, if they can't recall exactly how you said something, well, they begin to doubt. Or is it the power of God? I want us to ask ourselves that question. Where's our affection? Now, I also want to take this to a corporate level, okay? About the power of God, the wisdom of God how we often operate, how that's so often in contrast to the world in which we live and our, our common wisdom, if you will. Because I think it's applicable to us as a church here at Calvary. And I want to take us, just for a moment, this is where we'll close. <clears throat> There's two places in the Old Testament you could go to see it, but I'm in First Chronicles. This is First Chronicles chapter 14. Probably one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament. You could go to Second Samuel as well. But... Young King David has just been anointed as king. And as you would 
imagine the new king, the enemies are going to try and come in and, and test him out, see what he's made of. And so the Philistines decide they're going to go and have an attack on David, on Israel. And this is picking up, chapter 14, verse 8. It says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up in search of David. And David heard of it and went out against them. Now the Philistines had come and made a raid on the valley of Rephim. David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? So that's wise, right? What do I do? Go ask God first. Okay, that's where he's going. It says, and, and will you give them into my hand? Am I going to win? Then the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will give them into your hand. So they came up at Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, they named the place Baal Perazim. And they abandoned their gods there, so David gave the order, and they all burned them with fire. Okay, so that's episode one. Philistines come up against David. He prays, asks God for wisdom. What do I do? He says, go up against them. Fight, win. Okay? Here's episode two, verse 13. The Philistines made yet another raid in the valley. Okay, round two. They're getting ready to come back. They didn't learn the first time. Now, what might be our temptation as a, a, a people or a church, or if, if we're in the same scenario that we've been in before? God's instructed us and told us, hey, go up against them. Fight, you'll win. What's our temptation if we have the same scenario? Oh, well, God's told us this before. This is what we did last time. This is what we do this time. That's just how it works, right? Let's see what happens with David. David inquired again. And God said to him, you shall not go up after them. Oh, that's different. But wait, it's the same scenario, same situation, same enemy, same... We, just, we know what we're supposed to do, right? Not if you don't ask God. God said, you don't, you don't do it this way this time. Look, look what he says. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. So you go, you circle around, and you wait at the balsam trees. Now that doesn't seem like a good military strategy, right? Come on. But look what happens next. Verse 15. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees. Then you shall go out to battle. For God will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. And David did just as God had commanded him. And they struck down the army of the Philistines from Gibeon even as far as Gezer. Church, how often do we just in our wisdom decide to do what we've always done? Because God told us to do this a long time ago, so we're just going to do this, same thing. Rather than consistently and faithfully going before God every time saying, Lord, what do you, do? What do you have me to do? I think I might know, but I, what, what gives you maximum glory here? What, what do I need to do? Because here's the thing, if, if David had went up against the Philistines, would he have won? If he did the same thing he did before, maybe, I don't know. We don't know, maybe. But minimal, even if they had won, what would they have missed out on? 
They would have missed out on the tangible experience of hearing the armies of God in the balsam trees above them going out and fighting the battle for them. They would have missed that. That all of his troops, all of his army got to hear that and experience it with them. It wasn't just David. Everybody got to hear that. Church, that, that ought to be our ambition, our desire. That, that's my desire for us here at Calvary. That, that we not try and do things in our own strength, and our own power, and our own wisdom, but we say, God, we need you. And, and, and I want to hear marching on the treetops of you going before us and you doing this work. I don't want it to be, what can Seth do? Or what can this person do? Or, no, I want it to be you. And I want everybody else to see it. That should be our desire. So how do we operate here corporately as a church? I hope it's we go before God consistently and faithfully. Say, Lord, what do you have for us? There's 10,000 things we could be doing right now. What would you have for us? For maximum glory for you? What are we to do? I hope as we close, that might be your prayer. Lord, what do you have for us? Lord, we want to see you at work above all else. I'm going to pray, and uh, I just want you to be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning. Maybe you've been relying too much on human wisdom, fleshly wisdom, trying to climb a corporate ladder, or this, that, and the other, whatever. Maybe, maybe it's impacted your proclamation of the gospel. You want to be seen as articulate or wise in the world's eyes, and you just need to repent of that and say, Lord, forgive me. I want to be faithful. You just be obedient to what God's asking. I'm going to be out here in the breezeway area. I'd love to pray with you. I know some other folks are going to be out here as well. They'd love to pray with you. So let me pray. Father, again, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And Lord, that is true. And Lord, as we try and unpack this text a little bit, Lord, we see so often that you use the common things, foolish things of the world, the base things, the weak things. And Lord, so often we, we can look at our own condition and identify in that. And Lord, we rejoice that, that you operate in that way. And Lord, may our boast be in you, not in ourselves, not in anything else, not in any polished rhetoric or this, that, and the other, but may it be in you. So Father, we thank you. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that maybe doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you might draw them. Lord, that they might hear of a crucified king who came and gave his life as a ransom. That they might be washed clean of their sin. And Lord, I thank you for the victory that, yes, you died, but you didn't stay dead. There is the resurrection where you conquered death and hell and, and demonstrated your power. And so, Father, I pray that we might see that, that we might rejoice in that. Lord, we love you and we need you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.